I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The ISA savings limits are going up, but what use is that if an ISA pays 0.1% interest? Emerging market equities are up 31% in the past three months, but is this just a gearing up of a short-lived bear market rally? And we have some good news and bad news for people who rent out their properties. All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Charlene Goff. Hello. Steve Lodge. Hello. And our special studio guest, Brian Collings, managing partner of Hexham and manager of the Hexham Global Emerging Markets Fund. Hello to you all. So let's start then with individual savings accounts, or ISAs. In the budget, the Chancellor announced an increase in the amount that can be invested in an ISA each tax year to £10,200, of which £5,100 can be in cash savings. The new limits come into force in October if you're over 50 and next April for everyone else. But what use is a higher allowance if your bank only pays tax-free interest at a rate of 0.1%? According to research by de facto, almost every major bank and building society now has an ISA paying this pitiful rate. Uh, Steve, this is counteracting everything that the government is trying to do to help savers, isn't it? Well, Matthew, it certainly doesn't help. And it's uh, a case of you not being rewarded uh, for your loyalty or inertia. Um, I mean, you mentioned 0.1%. There are rates even lower than that. The, the worst one that de facto has identified, or the worst rate, is from Cheltenham Gloucester at 0.05%. And in some cases, there could be, well, there are likely overall to be millions of savers with these pitiful rates generally and some of them could have even as much as £50,000 in their cash eyes because they've put in a number of years or consolidated and certainly there'll be very many with um, over £10,000 and therefore earning negligible amounts of cash interest. Uh, We should point out that um, these banks and building societies offer a range of different ISAs, some of which pay more but you can quite easily find yourself on a 0.1% 1% rate, can't you? You can, Matthew. Um, I mean, essentially, this is a function of collapsing interest rates, but it's also that classic trick of banks and building societies to 
effectively downgrade older accounts while offering much better accounts to new customers and new money. They're not really interested in paying good rates on old money. They just want to bump up their rate to attract new money in. But as you rightly say, it's perfectly straightforward to transfer. Although there are a number of glitches. I mean, one, it can be a bit of an admin pain. Two, um, it may not be possible to, you may be in the Halifax's point one and Halifax mail for say, uh, for the sake of argument, a 3%. Um, in some cases, the same bank may not allow you to transfer within its portfolio, but will only offer that posh rates, of course, to the, to new money. And what I find particularly strange about uh, this is that while these ISA rates are remaining incredibly low, um, some of the rates that we're seeing on non-ISA accounts, some of the, the fixed-rate bonds, for example, are becoming almost more attractive. Yes, I mean, more of the same about um, wanting new money. Don't forget fixed-rate bonds is tied up sticky money. I mean, that's the attraction of ISA money to banks and building societies, of course. Fixed rates are also improving as well because of inflation expectations further out are... Uh, there is an expectation that, that uh, inflation will come back at some point. So particularly if you're prepared to lock up your money for um, periods of one, two, three, even five years, um, you can get five, uh, sorry, four percent, not five yet, four percent plus. And I suppose if if you can get four percent plus and you can arrange to have that four percent paid to you gross, um, you're almost in as good a position or better position than somebody with an ISA paying a low rate. Well, you are. And, and typically, the, the the sort of feature you've identified is, is something that a lot of pensioners do. So as rates have come down, a lot of pensioners living off savings income or using savings income to top up pensions have been able to sign up and can continue to sign up for gross interest. It's called an R85 form, and you can get one from your bank or building society. Then they'll pay you gross. So that's not quite the same as tax-free, but obviously if you don't have a tax liability at the end of the year, then that's the end of the story. And the key point, of course, with those fixed-rate bonds is there's no limit, typically, on the amount you can put in, uh, notwithstanding the uh, Chancellor's generosity ho-hum in uh, the budget. The new cash ISA limit, £5,100, and don't forget, it's still not available, not available till October and not available to those uh, spring chickens like ourselves out there um, till next tax year. And very quickly, can you just give us a quick run through of the worst ISAs and the best fixed rate bonds that are not ISAs? Well, the worst ISAs, Matthew, I mean, the likes, I mentioned Cheltenham and Gloucester's cash ISA, but one I, that made me particularly smile was um, West Bromwich's privilege uh, uh, privileged membership ISA, which pays 0.25%, or HSBC's preferential cash ISA, 0.25%. Uh, presumably it's preferential for them to offer that rate. Um, and there's even Virgin Money in there, um, that sort of consumer champion paying 0.1% as well. Um, on the fixed rate bond side you mentioned, there's... Um, Oddly, perhaps, or, not, or perhaps not oddly, West Bromwich Building Society, which has two of these uh, very poor-paying cash ices um, in our street of shame, um, is also offering 4.3% on a fixed one-year fixed-rate bond, which is a pretty reasonable deal. Um, I'm sure we'll hear more about the, the virtues of emerging markets, but in terms of, at times of stock market volatility and low inflation, 43 guaranteed sounds pretty good to me.
And an awful lot better than a privileged rate of 0.1%. but much the same. Not much more privileged than yes. 0.25. Thanks very much for that, uh, Steve. And uh, for more on ISA rates and those higher rates offered by fixed rate bonds, look out for Steve's article in FT Money with the Weekend FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. Remember, you can also send in your questions uh, to be answered by experts. Just email us at the address money at ft.com. Still to come, some good news and bad news for people who have bought to let. But first, investing in emerging markets. Share prices in the so-called BRIC economies have staged a remarkable recovery of late. Since November, Brazil's uh, stock market index is up 75%. Russia's RCS index is up 80%. China's stock market is up 52%. And India's is up 46%. And in the last seven days alone, the MSCI index of equities in 23 developing nations has climbed 16%. So, Charlene, I suppose the question that all investors are asking is, is this just a gearing up of the rally that's being seen in Western markets, or are emerging markets decoupling again? Well, I think it's probably a little early to say that the emerging markets and developed markets are going their separate ways, but there has definitely been a significant significant outperformance by the emerging markets since the start of this year, really. Uh, Brian, you're probably better placed uh, than me to comment. I mean, do you think this is a short-term trend, or do you think emerging markets is where the real opportunity is now? Yeah, I think, you know, looking back, this is an ongoing trend. I mean, emerging markets have been outperforming developed markets for the last uh, you know, 10, 11 years. Uh, in fact, the trend is so strong that if you go back and you look at uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett being the legend in the U.S., which he is, and it's a title that I think is uh, completely appropriate, emerging markets – uh, have outperformed uh, Warren Buffett for the last 10 years uh, almost every year and substantially uh, in excess of of, uh, of 15% per annum. So, uh, you know, that's an ongoing trend. The fourth quarter um, is an anomaly. Uh, I think we, we all know that now. Um, from a growth perspective, the fall in emerging markets generally, BRIC, Russia, or otherwise, I think was unjustified. Growth is a, is a premium to developed markets. Valuations are at a discount to developed markets. Currency, based on what current accounts are doing, uh, will be more robust than the developed market currencies. What about the ruble? Uh, ru- ruble has bounced substantially uh, in, in the last couple of months. It is more about liquidity. And let me come back to liquidity because I think it explains a lot about Russia that I think we should just touch on very briefly. Um, but even, even management, I think, you know, which is another drive of equity returns, is not as bad as everybody thinks it is in emerging markets. That's been an ongoing trend, but I think it's been... Uh, typified now by the poor governments, both corporate and sovereign in the developed markets. The final point I'll make, which I think is probably the most important thing to answer a lot of questions, is liquidity. Uh, We know that the developed market investor pulled a lot of liquidity out of uh, emerging markets. Russia was a victim of that. Uh, About 80% of Russia's equity market was foreign money. And And that explains the ruble as well. And was that the problems that you mentioned in the fourth quarter last year? I mean, there was an enormous Mm -hmm. sell-off, which 
triggered some quite severe falls in markets around yes. the world. What was the reason for that and, and how bad mm. was it in the fourth yeah. quarter? E- emerging markets we talk about as a block like we do developed markets, but emerging markets are 24 markets and, they, and they're very different. They're not nearly as homogenous as Europe, UK and the US. So on the one hand, you've got places like Chile, um, South Africa, Korea, vastly different economies. But what they had in common in the fourth quarter of last year was that they've got very developed capital markets for the domestic investor, domestic mutual funds domestic pension funds, etc. So there were buyers domestically to offset the foreign sellers. And the foreign sellers... But Russia didn't have that, for example, and a lot of other, well, a few other markets where they, where they don't have a domestic market, there were just loads of sellers and not enough buyers. So people <laughs> so just withdrew absolutely. from China, Russia, Ab- India... Absolutely. And some markets therefore fell more than others, but it wasn't reflective of the underlying fundamentals, more it was reflective of liquidity. And we've seen the unwind, as you introduced the subject uh, a few minutes ago, you saw the unwind in Russia suddenly up 80%, purely liquidity. And and is that because people have recognized that the longer-term fundamentals of these markets are actually stronger than the likes of the UK and the US? Yeah. So, Lena, I I think you're spot on. Uh, You know, you don't have to be an economist or an accountant to have a look at current accounts, budget deficits, tax rates, demographics. We can go on for about 10 minutes on the vast differences between these markets. Uh, Emerging markets have come of age, very much like the US in the early 1900s when US took over from Europe. And uh, I think emerging markets uh, are going to show their stuff as they have over the last 10 years. But they're appallingly risky, aren't they, Brian? I mean, you mentioned the fourth quarter sell-off. And, of course, you talked about the 10-year outperformance. The last time emerging market fund managers were pushing emerging markets was the mid-90s, I remember. And then we saw another crash, didn't we? Mm. So I think people need to be prepared for absolutely massive losses in these markets. So to simply say that they outperform isn't true. They, they, it's an extremely rough roller coaster yeah. ride. I, th- I think that's a very common held thought. I think, uh, no disrespect to you and, and many others that feel the same way, I think it's, it's a misconception. And I don't think people have realized the extent to which times have changed. These economies are not nearly in the same position they were in the, in, 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 in the early 90s and late 80s. That's the first thing. Second thing is developed market savings, and we felt it here sitting in the UK, have gone to emerging markets. You know, Russia still has $350 billion worth of reserves, but if you read the, the Western media a couple of months ago, they were seen as bust. Well, 80% up, that's just not the case. That's the first thing, and we could talk a lot on that, but the fundamentals have changed, and I think people need to have a deeper look into that because things have changed, and it's going to cost. The opportunity cost of not investing in emerging markets is going to be huge, especially given your conversation about what you're earning on interest rates uh, in this country, and I think equities are also going to underperform developed markets, uh, emerging markets as they have. On the issue of risk, I'll make one comment for, for 15 seconds, if I may. And that is that short-term volatility is not a reflection of emerging market risk. It's more a reflection of differences in liquidity. Developed markets come during the good times, and they put money into emerging markets. And when they need the money, they pull it out. And the markets often, it's changing, and it's changing fairly rapidly. These markets are becoming deeper and wider. But historically, the markets have exhibited volatility because of the developed market investor pulling money in and out. And, and that is not a good indication of risk. But, Brian, I mean, with the rallies that we've seen in the past few weeks, I mean, is it a good time to go in right now? Or do you think there could be some short-term pressure for investors? I think it depends on your personal circumstance, and and, and that's not a cop-out. What I will say is if you have no emerging market exposure, 
I would seriously put money in now, in a month's time, in two months' time, in three months' time. Okay, uh, I don't have an issue with that at all. If you have 25% of your money in emerging markets, I would take a breather because the markets have gone up substantially. Not much has changed in the world. As much as liquidity caused the debacle in the fourth quarter of last year, liquidity has caused a rally this year, and I think there's still a lot of vagueness. Thank you very much indeed for that, uh, Brian and uh, Charlene. And for more on uh, emerging markets and the funds that invest in them, look out for Charlene's article in Saturday's FT Money and online at ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, the return of good news, bad news. The news in question uh, this week is uh, for people who have investment property that they let out. Um, Charlene, let's start then with the good news. Well, the budget brought uh, some some good news, like you say, for people who have holiday homes abroad. So people with second homes in France or Spain who have been renting these out to try and boost their income a bit. And what has changed is that these people can now, for one year only, try to reclaim some of the tax they might have paid. And what it's basically done is bring the rules for properties held overseas into line with those held in the UK because for a long time uh, investors with second homes that they let out here in the UK have been able to have qualified for some quite beneficial tax breaks but they haven't been open to those with with homes abroad. So there was quite a, a strong case that you know this is discriminatory and the government has uh, decided to bring those into line. So it's good for people who have either made losses, uh, if they've been renting out their properties, but the rent that they've achieved has not managed to cover the mortgage costs and other costs associated with running those properties. So if that is the case, there is now a window up until the 5th of April next year where they could try and reclaim some of the those costs um, and another example where people could benefit is is if they have sold their holiday home and paid capital gains tax on on the gain, they may now be able to reclaim a proportion of that again just for the next eleven months after April next year. All of these tax breaks are going to be eliminated, so for u k property and for homes abroad, they are will cease to exist, so that is the bad news. And I suppose that, 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 yeah, that, that's the bad news for people with property abroad in the future. There's also some potentially, I suppose, bad news for those who have buy-to-let property in the UK. Um, well, certainly bad news potentially coming up. Uh, yes, there is. Uh, the government plans to introduce a sort of licensing scheme. So if you are a buy-to-let landlord, even if you just have one property, you know, maybe a home that you wanted to sell and you couldn't sell, uh, that you've decided to let out, any landlord will have to be licensed. So it brings in more bureaucracy, more form filling. I think there will be a small fee, just £50 or something. So the charge isn't too onerous, but it will be a pain. And it will also mean that landlords uh, will be obliged to keep the property in a certain state. So tenants will be able to complain if they haven't got their new carpets or curtains or what have you. Uh, and will be able to report their landlords. So there will be a stricter rules they have to follow. How they'll enforce that remains to be seen. 
Yes, the, the idea of every rental property in the UK being inspected by an army of uh, you know, government license exactly. agents seems unlikely. Yeah. So I suppose it'll fall to the tenant to... Yeah, and already tenants are being a bit more fussy because they've got a lot more choice out there. So it will just enable them to be that that much more demanding, which could be enough to drive the more amateur landlords out of the market. Steve, as a, as a former landlord, would you tolerate a licensing scheme? Well, it just seems, I think it's £50, isn't it, Charlene? So it seems to me that uh, it's just, you're, you're paying to fill in a form. It sounds to me like uh, another piece of unnecessary red tape. Um, but to be honest, I mean, as someone who's repeatedly said, I think the tax breaks for investments, investing in property are shameful in this country when they could be, the money could be used elsewhere. Um, I suppose I'm pleased to see a bunch of bureaucrats being employed um, to take the £50. But, I mean, back to the serious point, I think, about loss relief is what on earth is the government doing? Um, it's hitting high-rate taxpayers and high owners on the one hand, and it's bunging back, as I understand, you'll be able to actually go back and reclaim tax for properties you've already sold? I thought this was a government that was short of cash. Well, it sounds like they're uh, sort of getting a bit scared because there has been threats of bringing a discriminatory case against them. So people in the UK with holiday homes were entitled to all these tax breaks. People with homes in France or Spain weren't. So they've basically said, right, we're getting rid of these tax breaks altogether from next year for UK properties as well as those overseas. But for one year only, we'll let you reclaim the tax so you can't come back to us and say... Why am I missing out just because my second home's abroad rather than in the UK? And there, there are an awful lot of ministers and special advisors with homes in Tuscany who've suffered some terrible losses on the road. Exactly. We need to bear those in mind. Anyway, thank you very, very much uh, indeed for that. And you can read more about the new landlord licence and the tax breaks on European holiday properties in FT Money on Saturday. But that's all we've got time for in this week's FT Money show. Remember, you can email your questions uh, to us at money at ft.com and don't forget we'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form in the meantime you can read the latest news every weekday on our website ft.com forward slash money and listen to audio podcast updates throughout the week but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from charlene steve and brian collins managing partner of emerging markets fund manager hexham goodbye 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 